Welcome to the distinguishing practice of our reforming ancestors, a sermon by John Brown of Haddington in the year 1771. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan reform books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to S.W. Arby's reading of the distinguishing practice of our reforming ancestors, which we hope you find to be a great blessing in which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. The Distinguishing Practice of Our Reforming Ancestors Nothing so much distinguished our ancestors as their public covenanting with God. Divinely assured that in the days of Moses, Joshua, Asa, Joash, Josiah, and Nehemiah, the Hebrews had, with his approbation, thus dedicated themselves and their seed to the Lord, convinced that public covenanting is nowhere in the sacred page representative as a ceremonial service, and so must be equally lawful under the new dispensation as under the old. Convinced that it was expressly promised to take place under the gospel, Isaiah 19, verses 18 and 21, and with apostolic approbation was probably practiced in the Macedonian church. 2 Corinthians 8.5 Convinced that if subjects on proper occasions may enter into a solemn association and bond to promote the service, honor, and safety of their sovereign, the professed subjects of Jesus Christ may, in a social manner, devote themselves to promote his interest and honor. Convinced that if a number of purchasers at once may take out a charter for their property, wherein they constitute themselves and their heirs the vassals of a prince, duke or lord, there can be nothing unreasonable if a number of men take hold of the everlasting covenant and God in it, for their God and the God of their seed and hereon devote themselves and posterity to be his honorable vassals and servants. Convinced that if one man may solemnly devote himself to his maker, hundreds, nay thousands, may do so together. Convinced that if one or more may in baptism surrender his seed to the Lord, a whole nation may surrender their posterity to him. Therefore they did so in their public covenants, 
always supposing such vows good in their matter, plain in their form, seasonable in their juncture, and taken in truth, judgment, and righteousness. Our ancestors were convinced the first three precepts of the moral law approved thereof. The first requires us to avouch the Lord to be our God. Why may not a number do this together? The second enjoins our receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire the ordinances of God's worship. Why may we now not vow to be faithful to this trust and to cleave to the Lord, especially when the third requires us to swear by his name and vow to the mighty God of Jacob? Our ancestors knew that the seasons of public covenanting specified in Scripture were after signal deliverances, amidst threatenings of sore trials and heavy judgments, or when earnestly endeavoring to withstand or reform from signal corruptions. They thought the occasions whereon they practiced it tallied therewith. When the popish powers abroad were forming their league to extirpate the Protestant cause and its adherents, was it unseasonable for King James and his council, prompted by the Church, to set on foot the National Covenant, or for the Church to require the subscription thereof? When King Charles, Archbishop Laud, and their creatures combined to bury the pure worship of God, the Presbyterian form of Church government, and the civil liberties of the nation, was it unseasonable for the tables of the nobles to set on foot the renovation of the National Covenant and stir up their brethren to swear to maintain these valuable points? With respect to the matter of their covenants, our fathers were, not, were ready to defy their adversaries, to show them anything renounced that was not prohibited by the divine law, or anything espoused that was not therein required. In, 18, in 1580 and 1581, popery in general and in many particular heads was abjured, and the Protestant religion in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government then professed was sworn to. In 1590, an engagement to defend king, the king's person and authority was subjoined. In 1596, they confessed their various sins and engaged to walk more circumspectly for the future. In 1638, the maintenance of the true Protestant religion and of the civil authority of King Charles, then a prelactic persecutor in opposition to Laud's canons and liturgy, and a forbearance of some innovations already introduced till tried and allowed in a free general assembly, together with the leading of holy and exemplary lives and the assistance and defense of one another in fulfilling these vows, were sworn to and engaged. Episcopal government, the five articles of Perth, and the civil places and power of Kirkman, whose lawfulness was left undetermined in the Covenant 1638, in order that Episcopals as well as others might take it, being condemned by the Assembly that year, the Covenant was afterwards scribed as importing a renunciation of these innovations. In the Solemn League, most of the Scots and multitudes of England and Ireland swore in their places and callings to endeavor and the preservation of religion in Scotland and the reformation of it in England and Ireland, 
according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches and so promote a uniformity of religion in all the three kingdoms that they and their children might live together in faith and love and the Lord delight to dwell among them. They engaged in their respective stations to endeavor the abolishing of popery, prelacy, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness. They swore to promote the peace of the nation, to support the authority of the king and the privileges of the parliament, and to promote union among themselves in prosecuting these laudable ends. In 1648, the Scots, purged of many rotten-hearted professors by the English defeat of Duke Hamilton's engagement undertaken in favor of King Charles I, made an extensive acknowledgment of their breaches of the Solemn League. Error, heresy, schism, independency, anabaptism, antinomianism, familism, libertinism, skepticism, and erastianism, then rampant in Britain, were abjured. The maintenance of King Charles, still a strict Episcopalian, his authority and of the liberties of both church and state, was engaged too. What thing unlawful is here espoused? What thing unlawful is here renounced? What is here sworn to that is not implied in the ordination vows of every minister of the established church? What that is not implied in every candid adherence to the Westminster Confession of Faith? What that is not implied in every proper baptismal engagement? Whatever rigor they used in imposing these covenants, whatever allowance they gave to any to swear them, who did not understand them, or who did not appear inclined to perform his vows, must never be justified. It is certain they were less culpable on these heads than many suppose. Notwithstanding of the compulsory laws, I scarce find an instance of any force to take the covenant except by Montrose and Monroe, who were military men and both of them at last noted enemies to the genuine covenanters. It is certain multitudes took these covenants with cheerful knowledge and candor, and that surprising evidence of sobriety, a serious godliness, appeared among them. Prayerless and profane persons or families were held as a detestable nuisance. Their very armies resembled a congregation of saints. Multitudes suffered to the death for adhering to these vows, and died rejoicing in God their Savior whom God thus honored, let us not dare to calumniate as fools and lavish of their lives. The ratification of these covenants by the state on some of the covenanting occasions no doubt inferred a civil security of the religion therein espoused, even as the ratification of the confession of faith and other subordinate standards inferred a civil security to the Protestant religion therein exhibited. But as the latter makes not the Protestant religion a mere state religion, neither did the former render the covenants merely state covenants. In the national, the covenanters expressly declare that therein they join themselves to the true Protestant church as lively members of the same in Christ their head. Times without number they represent their engagements as covenants with God. 
which necessarily infers the reckoning them religious and not state covenants, which cannot be made with God without supposing a renovation of the Jewish theocracy in which God sustained the character of principal magistrate. In 1596 and 1638, the most noted occasions of covenanting, they were not so much as influenced by the smallest injunction from the state. In 1643 and 1648, the other two most remarkable seasons thereof, the ecclesiastical authority had the lead, and the civil did little else than add its sanction to what appointments the church had made. And in every period, ministers, not statesmen, were the ordinary administrators of these oaths. In this covenanting work, they never intended a mere acknowledgment of the obligation of the divine law with respect to the duties contained in their covenant, but a more strict binding of themselves to these necessary duties by a new and superadded obligation an obligation not increasing the original obligation of the divine law to these duties, but one entirely distinct from and superadded thereto. In this view have all nations of mankind in all ages made use of secondary obligations, of promises, bonds, vows, promissory oaths, as means of more deeply impressing the original mandates of the law of nature or revelation, by the constitution of a new, solemn, and distinct obligation which cannot be violated without superadding the new and distinct crimes of infidelity, treachery, and perjury to that of rebellion against and disobedience to the original requirement of the moral law. The obligation of the divine law to perform the duties contained in the covenants was the same thousands of years ere they were thought of, and would have been the same, suppose they had never been thought of, and is entirely divine. The law of God warrants the constitution of the obligation of lawful covenants to duty, and when it is constituted, requires the fulfillment thereof, and enforces the same with the divine sanction of rewards, in case of fulfillment, and of punishment, in case of breach. But this obligation, and which alone is the obligation of the covenant, hath no existence before the first covenanting act, and is constituted by it. The divine obligation of the moral law extends equally to all men. The obligation of covenants being constituted by a human act in obedience to the law of God extends only to such as either immediately or immediately engage in these, those covenants and relates only to this imperfect state. That the obligation of the national covenant and solemn league is perpetual, binding the whole nation in this and succeeding ages is evident. First, the things covenanted are duties required in the law of God, and so it cannot but be for the honor of God and the good of the nation and every person therein that they be perpetually observed. Second, these covenants were public deeds of our fathers and had power to dedicate us to the Lord in that manner as well as in baptism. And from God's ancient grant of the nation to his son, Psalm 2, 8, Isaiah 43, 4, etc., 
They had strong encouragement to do so. The covenanting work in Scotland was so often repeated and on some occasions, particularly in 1638, so universal that it is scarce probable there is a Scotch family on the continent which is not descended from some covenanter. Third, these covenants were public deeds of the representatives of both church and state acquiesced in by the subjects and so as binding as the covenant of Israel with the Gibeonites, which was only sworn by the princes of the congregation, Joshua 9, and yet continued binding on the whole nation 400 years afterward, 2 Samuel 21. Fourth, these covenants were public deeds of the body of the adult members in both church and state, and often repeated and ratified by the supreme authority of both, and so binding upon the whole church and nation and their posterity after them, Deuteronomy 5, verses 2 and 4, and Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 through 15. Even the public curse imprecated by the Jews met at the Passover, Matthew 27, 25, hath affected their whole nation and their posterity, without supposing that public covenanting of parents and of representatives of church or state, or of the greater part of a society, were binding on to their descendants. The body represented the whole society, and such as exceed thereto, there could be no dependence on public covenants and treaties in or between societies. Whenever the immediate covenanters, or often a few of them, died or lost their power, the obligation of the treaties would be voided, and so all things kept in confusion. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, 
soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.